This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodyear, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Dr John Jury a behavioural psychologist based at the University of Sussex who specialises in studying crowds and collective behaviour. Hi, John. Thanks uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Hi, Jason. Hi. So, obviously, it's big news recently that we've just come out of the second uh, COVID-19-related lockdown into a new three-tier system with much of the country still in in the strictest tier. Um, So, obviously, we've been dealing with this uh, situation for quite a long time now, since, since around March, and uh, everyone responds to um, to the rules and restrictions in different ways. So, just uh, by way of opening, what sort of what are the sort of the headline points, the key factors that affect uh, different people's behaviour to these sort of restrictions and rules? Um, I think from the beginning, there's been evidence of some some consistent evidence of some of the factors that matter. Um, and one of the things, obviously, is the belief. Uh, and the extent to which the measures are effective. Another one is uh, the extent to which, you know, there is, there is a threat. So, you know, the greater the R number, if you know about that, the more adherence. But there's also things like uh, your uh, your sense of solidarity is really important. People are doing it for others, not necessarily for themselves. Um, the sense of fairness or justice, I mean, that's come up with the, with the, new, uh, with the new tiers, and, it, and it's, it's always been a factor. Um, and then linking these, I would say, is um, confidence in the government, confidence in, the, in what the government's doing. Um, I mean, there was a, a very good panel survey carried out by uh, UCL, which found that that was the major predictor of adherence of many of the, the behaviours we were asked to engage in. So that's quite interesting. I'm going to drill into that a little bit, because um, obviously the government's come under quite heavy criticism from um, from various even within within uh, the Conservative Party themselves. But there's been certain 
key events, I think, that, are, that have perhaps affected um, this particular uh, topic. So th- probably chief among among these is the, the Dominic Cummins uh, debacle. So how much of a dent do you think that put in um, public confidence in, in the government? Well, it did. I mean, there were, um, there were a number of uh, uh, incidents and issues around the summer, May, June, July, um, and that was one of them all of which contributed to a decline in adherence. So having said that, you know, I need to put that in context and say that adherence remained high, right? Um, but there are these factors that did chip away at it and reduce it somewhat in that period, one of which was the uh, the messaging. The messaging became less effective. Um, the, uh, the decline in uh, sense of national unity was another. And a third was this... Uh, this this Cummings incident, which was interpreted by many as showing that, you know, we're not all in it together. Um, there's one rule for some and, and one rule for others. And there's some evidence that at least some people took that to mean, well, I don't have to abide by the rules now. On the other hand, many others who were, you know, committed to, you know, doing their bit um, used um, Cummings as a kind of negative, negative example and, and carried on and said, well, you know, I don't want to be like that. I want to, uh, I want to uh, carry on doing my bit. Um, so there certainly was an effect, although it was quite complex. And since then, you know, I have to say, um, adherence levels for most of the behaviours required, and, you know, we do need to say not all of them, for most of them has been, you know, still high, you know, 70% or more. So that sort of feeds into the the point that you made there about solidarity. Mm. Um, is there a certain uh, influence of um, what could you say herd behaviour? Sort of ironically, safety in numbers. Like all those people are doing it, they're all going to the shops. Then why, you know, why can't I? Well, I'm going to have to uh, take issue with your term there, herd. Um, I mean, yep. it's a word you might associate more with animals. Um, and it's sure. it, it kind of <laughs> yeah. got the implication that the, the psychology, the mentality of collective phenomena is somehow more primitive than you know, individual decision making, individual rationality, which you know, so I'm kind of questioning that. Um, I mean, there are different levels of self. OK, so when we talk about self-interest and you know, rationality, you know, the question is which self, right? Um, because, you know, it's a kind of I suppose there's a consensus in you know, modern social psychology now that the self identity exists at different levels. Um, and there's the collective self, our, sen- our, our sense of being a we or an us, is just as a powerful predictor of behaviour as, you know, our, our personal identity. <clears throat> so certainly national identity at the beginning did, uh, was a factor. Uh, but there are different levels, again, of, the, of, the, of this collective. Um, some studies have found that co- um, community identity, your, your identity with your local area is a better predictor than, uh, you know, national unity. Um, But certainly, um, I mean, some of the most effective government messaging um, from the early days was when they shifted away from saying, do do it to keep yourself safe, to do it for others, right? Because that doing it for others um, does seem to be a key motivator. Because if you're doing it for yourself, you could say, well, look, look at me, I'm fit and well, right? You know, I'm not going to be affected, and then you take these risks, but of course, you know, you're, you're interdependent, you're, you have relationships with others. So it's thinking about others that seems to make a difference. And as for, I mean, there's a separate point, I think, about, you know, other people doing things and what you take from that. You know, when you, when you said herd mentality, I mean, pe- seeing your neighbours 
go to the shop, seeing your neighbours breaking the rules, right, um, it's not a mindless thing, it's a mindful thing. You'll think that tells you something about what is safe and what is normative, what is appropriate for my group. I mean, it's quite hard to turn around and say, well, we feel we feel just as unsafe now when you see other people who, you know, you take to tell you something about your world, breaking the rules. I mean, that's called, in psychology, we call that social appraisal, the way that others' behaviour gives us information about how to feel. And, you know, it's a heuristic in a sense that, you know, it might be right, it might be wrong. We use it a lot and very often it serves us well. I mean, is, there, is it possible that there's a certain uh, echo chamber effect where um, our sort of social groups, we all, we all behave in, the, in a similar way. So then we don't exactly know what other groups are doing or we, or we judge them in a different way. Well, we certainly look to our own group uh, more than other groups. But, you know, the first point is that the groups exist at different levels of abstraction. Um, but the second point is certainly our own group gives, gives us more information about what is right. Um, but in a way, that's OK, isn't it? Because there are local and regional variations in, you know, the R value and in, 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 in infection levels. So, you know, some of this kind of localised, um, fragmented kind of group uh, cognition is, you know, again, a useful way of um, uh, understanding something about, you know, what's appropriate and what we should be doing. Changing gear a little bit now. So um, you mentioned earlier about the effective messaging. What sort of um, techniques can can governments or authorities employ to not ensure, but to encourage people to follow these restrictions? Well, yeah, I've already mentioned the thing about you know who who the who the subject is, who who's being addressed, and how they're being addressed. That's one point. A second point is who's doing the addressing. Who does it come from? Um, I mean, uh, as the government lost credibility, then there was a problem in their useful messaging not being listened to so much because it was coming from them. So, you know, the messenger, that, that needs to be thought about. And then the third point, um, and this really comes from, you know, health psychologists. You know, I, I have been working with health psychologists since I've been involved with, you know, research and, and, and advice on, on COVID. And, and they would say, well, your message about what to do should be actionable. And in fact, this ties in with you know, work I've done on, on mass emergencies, where they sometimes say, stay calm, don't panic. Is that helpful? I don't think so, because in an emergency, you don't want advice on how to feel. You want advice on what to do. And if you're anxious, what makes you less anxious is uh, knowing what to do. It's practical information. So when they shifted from stay at home, which was an actionable, clear behaviour, you know, everyone knew what that meant, to stay alert, which is much less clear in terms of what it means. I mean, what, what do they mean by alertness? How alert? Um, there was a drop-off in public knowledge of the rules. Um, so, um, you know, the so actionable, advice which is actionable is, is the third piece of uh, advice for, for government messaging and communications. So um, often in, in these things, there's the idea of um, reward influencing behaviour. So obviously there's the, in this sort of situation, there's the personal reward of following the rules and not catching the virus. But sort of what other, other roles do you think this idea plays? 
Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's much in it personally. For many, for most people, there's not a lot in it personally, right? I mean, although it's a, you know it's a minority, one in a hundred, you know, might suffer fatalities, and then there's long COVID. It's still a minority. We are doing it for others, right? And so there isn't there isn't this award, but um, there's a debate to be had about the role of sacrifice. At the very beginning, there was a discussion around the concept of fatigue. Could the public hack it? Could they endure this, right? Could they go without? Could they make these sacrifices? Could they deal with this inconvenience? Well, they did and they have. Right? It was a very good um, review published in BMJ, I think, by my colleagues Susan Mickey and Robert West, which looked at um, whether there was any evidence for, for fatigue over time, and they decided that there wasn't. Um, um, so, you know, if you look at other kinds of events where people make a sacrifice think of marathon running think of religious festivals i mean i uh, have done research on the hajj others have done research on on the mela these are physical endurance events and the point is that people will do these things for a greater cause so there isn't this kind of personal there isn't much in terms of personal reward um but there is a lot in terms you know what we what we aspire to and what we care about so sort of taking that from the opposite angle then, um, so there's a, ser- there's a series of fines um, that are now introduced for, bro- for breaking these certain restrictions. Um, and there's, there's certain like cases where there's been mass gatherings and the, the fines are, they're substantial fines. So what sort of effect do you think something like the, a fine or a punishment like that has on, on the behaviour? Well, this is a good question. There's been um, the question of punishment or coercion more generally in public health measures has been looked at in other contexts. So I was involved in some research looking at uh, mass decontamination when there's a chemical incident, right? Now that requires a self-sacrifice in the form of having to take your clothes off and go through a shower in a a public space, right? So a high personal cost behaviour. And when people were um, coerced into it or attempted to be coerced into it by being shouted at and threatened, then, you know, engagement went down. People did engage when there was communication, when there was concern and care about people's needs, right? So punishment was counterproductive because it got because it led to people resisting the, 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 the thing they're being asked to do. So the, the general point there is that punishment or coercion affects the relationship. So the relationship becomes not one about public health, but one about our rights, like we're being bullied here, we're being threatened here, what about our rights uh, what about the way we're being treated? Um, so if you look at it in terms of COVID, I mean, one of the early studies um, carried out by people at LSE found that the threat of punishment was a an inferior predictor to people's adherence to the rules then than the law. Because, you know, the law has been used you know, quite early on. It was used in, been used since March. Um, it was a poor predictor. And then if you look at the, the one behaviour that we haven't talked about yet, which is uh, has been has had the lowest figures for adherence, right? And you know you probably know what that is. It's self isolation, right? It's very poor. Ten percent, twenty percent. These are the kind of figures. So now you've got these punishments for this. But if you look at the data on the process, why is it that people are not self isolating enough? Because you know meant to be fourteen days. It's not always fourteen days. Who are they, right? So there are psychological factors. But they're not willfulness. They're things like not knowing the rules, um, what your peers are doing. So you've got the norms thing again. 
So, you know, these are alternatives to punishment. And then you've got, you know, who they are. They're, they're certain demographics. They're people who haven't got the financial support, haven't got the social support. So to bring in punishment when, you know, it's not um, willfulness that is the problem, misunderstands what's going on there. Um, so, you know, punishment, um, there are alternatives to punishment which are probably better. So another thing that um, was, it was a while back now, but there were quite a few high-profile figures saying that they'd actually report their neighbours for um, for breaking lockdown. So just like to see what the what you what your view is on what kind of what effect psychological effect that sort of statement has. Yeah, I think um, my worry about that is that it affects social cohesion. I mean, yes, we you know we all need to or most of us need to stick to the rules. And yes, there is a place when you've got a group, um, it's called collective self-regulation, or sometimes it's called self-policing. There's certainly a role for, you know, not um, for managing from within, you know, for managing others within your group who are not um, adhering. But usually you think of, well, the research is on things like football crowds and crowds in emergencies where this is achieved by people within the group communicating, right? So um, supporting others, if you like, or just having a word with them, right? Because it comes best from, you know, other people within the group. Um, I can imagine, you know, the equivalent of that when COVID would be you you go around and talk to your neighbour, right? But reporting them to the police. And I know, actually, that the data for reports to the police absolutely rocketed and they couldn't, there were so many, they just couldn't cope with it. Um, so it's not just celebrities, it's other people. And it's, it's not really, it's not that good because we do need this sense of being in it together and solidarity. And it is quite um, undermining of that. Um, so, you know, I would say that's not, uh, that's not a good development. So another one, this is perhaps a, li- a little bit outside what we've been talking about, but I was, it's just something that I was interested in. Um, and that's sort of cultural variations. So um, when I was younger, I spent a few years living in Japan and they tend to follow rules a lot more strictly. That's much more part of their culture. And they have very low, I thought it was interesting they have very low, at least at first, um, spreading of COVID. So I just, you know, compared to to us over here, which had it quite severe, I just wondering what sort of, um, you know, how much of an impact that sort of thing plays. Uh, yes, certainly there are cultural differences around. I mean, it's not just abstract rules. It's actually around some of the specific practices around around pandemics, because there is a culture, of course, of you know wearing masks, uh, face coverings in Japan and other and other countries. Um, but there are also risks. I mean, I was talking to somebody from um, from Bangladesh the other day, and they were telling me that um, you know a lot of the Illness and fatality have been and fatalities have been within families where the uh, you know the son or the daughter has got it and given it to the parents. And if you look at the figures for where spread happens, you know everywhere, you know it's the, the homes. And in those so-called collectivist countries, the bond of the family is very very strong, whereas in more kind of individualist countries, we're much more kind of you know, free agents and so on. Um, and so, you know, what might be going on there is that, you know, what seems like a good thing, you've got all this kind of loyalty. That loyalty kind of backfires when people get together to support each other physically, right? They physically get together, right? And that leads to, to spread to, to vulnerable family members. So, 
you know, it, it's good that people, you know, listen to their public health advice from their governments and take it on board, right? And they've got a tradition of, you know, engaging with these behaviours. But there are other elements in, you know, collectivist countries which are not, you know, which also pose risks. So the sort of massive news uh, recently in the, in, um, the COVID, the whole COVID-19 story, is that the uh, development of several uh, effective vaccines. So I just wondered what sort of effect this might have. So, um, you know, on the one hand, you could be like, oh, we're out of the woods now, we've got a vaccine. Or perhaps on the other hand, you know, we've, oh, we've got a vaccine, if we just hold on for a little bit longer then we truly will be out of the woods. I just wondered what the sort of thinking behind that might be. Um, well, it's interesting because I used to say when I, when I talk to people about the role of psychology and behaviour in the pandemic, right, until we've got a vaccine, it's all about behaviour. It's about distancing, it's about hand washing, it's about self-isolation, it's about behaviour, right? But actually, when you've got a vaccine, it's still about psychology, right? Because people have got to believe in the, in, in the vaccine, they've got to do the behaviour of getting the vaccine. It's about vaccination, just not just not just the vaccine. And vaccine hesitancy is a is a big thing, right? Um, I mean, some of the survey data I've been looking at recently shows that vaccine confidence has actually been going down just at the time when we need it to go up. So there needs to be a lot of work to reassure people because vaccine hesitancy is not the same as you know anti-vaxxers, right? It's actually you know, a, a majority of people, right? It's actually a small majority of people. Um, it's not the, it's not the mi- committed minority. It's a very large number of people who are hesitant. And there needs to be, um, you know, I hesitate to use the word reassurance, but there needs to be information that will make people believe that this is uh, safe and effective. Um, so, you know, that is that, and these are psychological things. So that these are, these are really important variables at this time. So it's the, it's the sort of feeling that people don't want to be the first in the first batch to to test it. They want, re, you know, like you say, reassurance over a period of time that it's safe before they're willing to to take a dose of the vaccine themselves. So Christmas is coming up soon. Uh, we've got this five day sort of lap relaxing in the in the rules. Yeah. So what what sort of factors are going to be at be at play here? In the, in, that will affect our behaviour. Yeah. Well, the first thing to say, of course, is that contacts is how the virus spreads. And you now I've heard the I heard it said the virus doesn't recognise Christmas, and it's it's worth repeating. I mean, you know, if you look at the the public health experts, they will say they're doing things like if they're going to meet their parents, they're going to isolate themselves for five to seven days beforehand, right? Or they're not going to visit them. Right. If people are going to visit, I mean, there's quite a lot of guidance, actually, because um, the advisory groups to the government have produced very detailed guidance on um, making Christmas visits safer, like the ventilation, like where to sit at the table, all these kinds of things. So that's really, really practical, useful stuff. I think the, the main, main worry about it, I suppose, is the fact that they're relaxing the number of households that get together. Um, 
Because it just, and, the, and the longer you spend together, the, the more it increases risk. And because it's winter and because it's cold, you're going to be reluctant to have that airflow that you need. So I am, I am concerned about it. And I do know that when they, uh, they had their, their equivalent holiday in, in Canada a few weeks ago, then you know, infection rates went up. And I think we're seeing the same in the United States, although it's a bit too early to say. Um, so it, it, is, it is a bit worrying. But I think, you know, the government have decided this now and uh, people have started making plans. So, you know, that is why I'm not going to say to people don't do it, because I think people are going to do it. But, um, you know, these are the reasons why I'm, I'm concerned about it. So just one sort of um, final question then to cut things off. So looking forward, you know, we've got a vaccine, it's effective. What sort of proper long term impact is, is this going to have had on, on um, our psychology? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, my current research is on mutual aid groups and they've kind of filled a gap that the um, the authorities haven't been able to, uh, to meet needs that the authorities haven't been able to. Because as we said, you know, self-isolation has been this, 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 this problem of all the behaviours, right? The test uh, trace isolate system is failing and one of the points of failure is that people are not isolating enough. What, what do they need to isolate? They need financial support. They need social support. And that means getting their shopping. It means getting their prescriptions. It means walking their dog. It means giving them emotional support. Lots of these things. Now, if you look at the development of these groups, there's certainly there was a surge in activity in the, in the early months and then it declined. But you look at them now, many of them are still going and some of them are having conversations about how they take it forward, right? After COVID, are they still going to be there? Right. And they are kind of alternative. Well, they're networks, but they're also alternative structures. They're alternative ways of doing things or even alternative ways of doing politics. I mean, that's how some people think of them now. I mean, some of them are people who've been involved in groups and volunteering before. Many of them are new people seeing things in a new way. So I think that is actually quite exciting. It's quite hard work for them. And I think, you know, there's a risk for people involved in those groups of, of stress and burnout, but you know, it's also quite an exciting prospect for the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. The December issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. It's a special issue all about the search for extraterrestrial life. In it, we talk to a scientist who is beaming messages into space for an intelligent alien species to hear. We explore the best places in our solar system to look for life and we discuss why we all want to believe in aliens. And as always, there's much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.